This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Michael DeSanti dedicates his book, New Man Emerging, to the Divine Feminine. He writes, For centuries you have called for peace, screamed from the treetops that a life of beauty is possible, and have patiently waited for boys to put down their foolish games that have caused the world heartache and despair. For far too long have you wept at night, praying for another way as we men ignored your plea and went on fighting, comparing, and competing only to never be satisfied. In our immaturity, we have caused suffering and pain by simply refusing your deeper wisdom and patience and foolishly mistook your vulnerability for weakness. I am as guilty as the rest, and my mistakes and blind spots are far too many to count. I ask for your love and forgiveness as the masculine awakens. It is my promise that in our mistakes there were seeds of wisdom planted that are now emerging. This book is my contract with you, that I am putting down my sword and walking off the battlefield completely. I do this not from a defeat of spirit, but quite the contrary but rather with a clarity of purpose and vision that is fueled by your beauty and love. A commitment to healing the wounds that we have collectively caused by our sleep. We are awakening. You can rest now. We are coming home to you. Valeria Tellis interviews Michael DeSanti. Michael is the author of New Man Emerging, He is a transformational trainer and also the owner of Authentic Self-Healing, LLC, a men's fulfillment coaching company. His latest endeavor is Find Your Tribe, an online coaching company for men who are committed to living their lives at their full potential. Michael's life mission is to inspire men to live lives of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. Here is the interview with Michael DeSanti. In your own words, who is Michael DeSanti? I'm a man constantly seeking to be a better man. Wow. That sounds really great. And we'll explore that in depth in a minute. Um, I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, 
New Man Emerging, an Awakening Man's Guide to Living a Life of Purpose, Passion, Freedom, and Fulfillment. So my first warm-up question is, what is life to you, Michael? What is life for me is an expression of divinity and desire. Wow. What do you think is the opposite of life? Stagnation and fear. (laughs) Right. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Living a life that is in accordance with my principles and values. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And what is your vision for a new world? What the world needs most now is the realization of interconnectedness between each other and also between the natural world. And the second question was, what is my vision for a new world? Is that we realize that interconnectedness uh, through accessing higher consciousness and remembering who we are at our core. Wow. Um, I love that. I just wanted to ask um, some follow-up questions to uh, clarify um, that higher divinity nature. Um, The first question is, what, where, and who is God to you? The expression of that interconnectedness, that truth of interconnectedness. And it's the expression of that to me. Right. Um, Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? I do. I do see a a distinction of it. I think religion points people to a way, whereas I think spirituality points people to their way, their own way. And I think they can interconnect and they can share and they can coincide and coalesce. Uh, But I think the biggest distinction is that I'm following a way or I'm following my own unique way. Mm, Yeah, right. Mm. What is love to you? (laughs) The unexplainable. (laughs) I think it's the encapsulation of all states and emotions uh, that are possible in the human heart. Wow. Can you give me some examples of that, of the manifestations of love? That's a a valuable way of putting it, because I think love is more like the wind. We can't see it, but we can see the manifestations of it. And so for me, the way that it manifests in my life is my wife and the way that she laughs, the way that she smiles at me, the way that she... uh, supports me and loves me through her words and her actions. Love is uh, purposeful work. Love is my family and the way that we communicate and talk. Love is uh, mornings with our little dog that comes up between my wife and I every morning just to let us scratch her belly. And love is uh, a good cup of coffee with a friend and a great conversation. And love to me is nature and seeing Uh, Mother Earth in in really dramatic settings. I could go on forever, by the way, (laughs) but those those are some ways that love manifests in my life. Yeah, I like the way you made it um, really humane and real, like uh, close to your own personal experience, 
That's so wonderful to hear. And my last warm-up questions, two of them. What do you think is the purpose of life? Is to consciously express that divinity within us, to consciously manifest that divinity, that seed that is in us. And I think that is uh, the purpose that we're here to serve, discover, or remember. Right. What would you say is the main purpose of your life, your mission, your gifts? My purpose is healing, body, mind, and soul. And the, my, that's my purpose. My mission is to help men awaken to that. Um, I love your wisdom. <laughs> oh, thank you. So let's talk about your work. What is the promise and what was the inspiration of writing your book, New Man Emerging? The promise is really a roadmap for men that are committed to awakening to their, their potential. And the inspiration behind it was, at first, I actually woke up in the middle of the night uh, with words that just kind of came to me. And I couldn't go back to sleep. So I walked into my office and I started typing and then I went back to sleep. And then <laughs> I, it happened again the next night and the next night. And my wife eventually asked me, what are you doing in the middle of the night? <laughs> and then I read uh, what I had written and she sit, looked at me and said, you need to write a book about this. And I thought she was crazy. I had no intention of writing it. And then that day uh, we went to my mother's house and she my wife asked me, read that to your mother. And I started reading it to my mother. And she said, you need to write a book about this. And so that became the, the motivation, I think, behind writing it. And then I look back on it now, and there was a deeper inspiration because it was a time when the Me Too movement was really starting to come to the surface. And there was a lot of this language around, you know, where are all the good men? And I remember thinking, like, I, I can't relate to abusive men. And I also can't really relate to being abused. And I thought, but wh where's the voice for all the men, the good men that want to either speak up or be part of a contribution to what's really going on in the world? And I thought, well, this could be an inspiration to allow or a voice that has the good men speak up because I think we, it was a time when there was a lot of demonization and noble honorable men really weren't speaking up and I said you know this is our time to speak up and I think that was an inspiration behind uh, writing a book for men and honorable men and having a blueprint and a guide book to really either follow or to reaffirm, uh, you know, their, in, their quality intentions. So that was really the inspirations behind it. Right. So that makes me think about um, a question that's not here. What is to be a good man and honorable man? For me, it's the, the balance and the marriage and the integration of masculinity and femininity to be a man of presence to be a man of uh, that balances what I call archetypes of men which is you know the warrior who wants to protect what he loves the the sage who wants to give and receive wisdom the the jester who wants to remind everyone not to take life so seriously 
<laughs> and uh, and also the uh, the romantic that wants to let the people know uh, that he cherishes them. And so I think a, a noble, honorable man uh, knows the balance and the integration and the marriage of all those archetypes of masculinity, and then also knows when to bring uh, what's needed. So that when the protector is needed, he's there. When the sage is needed, he's there. And when the jester or the comedian is needed, he's there. And when the romantic is needed, he's there. So I think an honorable man always asks the question, what is this moment calling forth from me? And then, and then brings it and has the skill set to bring it. Because I think uh, a lot of our challenges in life, sometimes life asks us to bring the hammer and sometimes life asks us to bring the rose. And if life is asking me to bring the rose and I keep swinging a hammer, those results aren't going to be very great. And if life is asking me to bring the hammer and I keep bringing the rose, I'm also not going to get the results that I, I desire or that my partner desires. So I think a, an honorable man asks the question, what's needed, and then also has the skill set to bring what's needed. Wow. Um, yes. So you're speaking of balance and wisdom, ultimately wisdom. Yeah, presence and wisdom. Yes. Yeah, I'll ask you that question later about presence. I have a question here on that. But before that, talk to me a bit more about your understanding of the divine feminine and the divine masculine. So it's a hot topic right now. And I'm happy that this conversation is circulating our culture because I think there's been a lot of stigma and misconception around masculinity and femininity or divine masculinity and divine femininity, because I think it got wrapped up in gender and got wrapped up in roles uh, throughout culture and society. But the way that I teach and coach masculinity and femininity is that really they're energetic forces, very similar to yin and yang or the North and the South Pole, that they're polars. Now, masculinity or divine masculinity really points to, and I give the example of a mountain, it points to structure and discipline, commitment. Uh, it's unmovable. The storms come and go and it stays present and unmovable, disciplined, consistent, committed. Divine feminine for me is more like the ocean. It's deep. It's ever-changing. One day it's a lake, the next day it's a tsunami. <laughs> Forever changing, vast, <laughs> uh, unfathomable. Its depth is unfathomable. And it's forever changing. It's forever uh, adjusting. And to me, divine masculine and divine feminine isn't necessarily to let's distinguish so that we could choose one or the other. It's really let's distinguish so that we can blend and marry them. Because like I said before, there's times in life when life calls forth the hammer and there's times when life calls forth the rose. And I, as a present and honorable man, like I was saying before, is that we, we know which to bring. And so states of masculinity, like I said, are I gear more towards consistency, integrity, discipline, commitment, uh, trustworthiness and states of femininity, I gear more towards passion, 
forgiveness, trust, surrender. And we need, as to be dynamic human beings, to be whole human beings, we need an integration or a marriage of both of these energies. Mm, I love that, uh, Michael. And that is so true. So it, the feminine and the masculine energies can be accessed by everyone, men and women. That's, I think, where a lot of the misconception is that, well, you're a man, so you must be masculine and you're a woman, so you must be feminine. Everyone has both energies. <laughs> everyone has masculine energy and everyone has feminine energy. We tend to be dominant in one or the other, but you could be a man and have dominant feminine energy and you could be a woman and have dominant masculine energy. It's just simply what we... Uh, are reflexed to or learned or conditioned. But I think the most dynamic human beings are the ones that know how to harmonize both energies. Mm. I agree 100%. Um, what is the mission of the authentic self-healing coach coaching? Purpose for me is is healing. And the mission has really evolved into you know, being a, a space, a mentor, a coach, a trainer for men to really awaken to their own power and access freedom and honor and nobility. So that's been really the mission as of the last few years of my coaching and training practice. And I think for me, and as I've narrowed down that mission, even when I was speaking before about writing the book, I wrote the book to men, but it's really more of a gift to women and to femininity. And I think the overall purpose of healing, for me to narrow down my mission and say, here, I'm, I'm working with men. And I think that by men you know, waking up from this sleep that we've been in of competition and, and consumption, that as we move more towards cooperation, we'll all heal, men and women alike, and everything in between. So that's been the mission of, of my coaching and training practice. Yeah, and that relates to the, um, what you call the epidemic that um, modern men are facing. Talk to me about that. What kind of epidemic? I call it in, in my book, this current epidemic, and it's really the epidemic of what I call the half-lived life. And it's really a life of conformity and a life of compromise, that there's a, a masculine spirit of freedom and adventure And that over time, so many of us have been taught to, you know, give away those childish things, put those aside, let that adventurous hero spirit in you die and take a good job, make money and earn and accomplish and get a good relationship and get a good house and earn and climb the ladder. And there's a lot of uh, compromise of spirit in that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making money. And I, I love making money. Uh, but I think when we do it at the compromise of our spirit, we end up compromising over and over and over again. And then one day we wake up as men and we wonder, how did I get here? What happened to that adventurous spirit in me? What happened to the hero that I thought I dreamed of becoming? And I think right now we have a lot of uh, men facing this epidemic of how did I get here? And when we're really honest about it, we look back, we say, you know, I sold out or I compromised a lot of my dreams, 
a lot of my authenticity, a lot of my heroship to go with the mold or to make other people happy or to fit in with the cultural paradigm. And I, I was guilty of that in my entire 20s. And I woke up one day and I, I remember thinking, this can't be it. This can't be my future and my life. And I adjusted the trend of my future dramatically, but it took a lot of courage and it took a lot of really practicing like, and, and trusting myself and my own spirit. And that was 10 years ago. And I don't look back a day since. Yeah. How wonderful that you're able to do that. A lot of people it's still stuck in that place. And I really love the work you do. I was lucky to have my midlife crisis at 30. <laughs> oh, yeah, early. <laughs> I was right. lucky at 29 or 30. So, uh, yeah, I had mine. Um, so um, a question came to mind. I'm wondering what can we do about these external forces that can lead us, men and women, to compromise and not live our purpose and uh, fulfill the desire of the spirit? I think the first thing, and I coach my, my men on this quite often, the first thing is, I always say, the wise archer doesn't adjust the target. The wise archer adjusts his form. And for me, the, it's always a discipline of always looking at myself as the archer. Where is my form out? Where is my aim out? And one of the things that I, I do with my, my men that I coach is, be honest about where you're lying. And it's huge. And the, the distinction is most people think that lies are deliberate misleading, meaning, uh, Valerie, the, the gold is this way when I know that it's that way. Most people don't lie that way. Most people lie through uh, lies of inflation or lies of omission meaning I'm going to speak to you in a particular way and I'm going to inflate it. I'm going to make it sound greater than it is. I'm going to make myself sound greater than I am or the circumstance better than it is. Or other people lie, they omit. Like I'm going to tell you something, but I'm going to tell you in such a way so that you're going to hear it the way that I want you to hear it because I don't want you to be upset with me. And I think that when we really start to dive deep into our own self and we start to highlight, wait, where am I omitting? Where am I inflating? And really start to own it. We start to re make a new relationship with honesty and with trust. And people may not like what you're saying, but at least they'll respect it. And now we have a possibility together. But the moment we sell out our honesty and the moment we sell out our integrity, we create compromises that break down relationships and break down partnerships. And we eliminate trust and we eliminate respect and we eliminate you know, dignity between us. And I think that's a, a, a really valuable place for us to start as individuals is to really notice, wait, where am I? Where am I lying to myself? Where am I lying to my partner? Where am I lying to people? Where am I omitting? What am I inflating? And then own it. Own that, <laughs> own that we do it. But we create a new space for honesty. Honest is a, a Latin word. It's own est, own as one and est as present. 
So honesty is really about this is me present with this moment. And from this place of honesty, we can build something new. Right. Yeah, I love your message. I absolutely love your message. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so it seems to me like we act the way we do, men or women. Um, I know your message is more directed to men, but mostly because of fear. There are lots of fears. Um, there's a section in your book that I found to be very interesting. You talk about fear, but you also talk about, um, yeah, fear as our greatest poison. Um, and then you also talk about um, this fixed reality that we believe exists. And also talk about doubt, delay, and distraction. But before all these three, talk to me about fear. When we make our fears real, they become our greatest poison. So fears, if you think about our worldview or our paradigm, or let's say the mental box or construct that we live in as individuals, fears are really where I've placed my limitations. That as I live in this construct of possibility within myself, that when I come up against fear, it's simply a reminder to me that this is where I've placed a mental limitation on myself. Now, the moment I make that fear real, meaning it's a wall that I can't break through, then it becomes a guiding limitation for my future. But the moment I look at my fear, oh, I'm up against my fear. I've come into contact with it. And I remember, oh, it's not a wall. It's more like a rubber band. I could stretch it. It's malleable. With that, as I live into my fear, I could actually stretch it like a rubber band. I could gain possibility. I can gain ground or advancement as I move forward. But the moment I make my fear real, as though it's a fixed reality, there's nothing I can do about it. This is where I begin and end. These are my limitations. The moment I make that fear real, it becomes more like a brick wall that I must live inside. And I talk about what I call the three D men's doubt, distraction, and delay, those are ways that that fear constantly manifests in us. We all have doubts. That's natural as a human being. We, we even need some of it to survive as a human being. But the moment we make it a fixed reality as though it's real and there's nothing I can do about it, then I've, I've limited myself. And now my life can only be the way that I've allowed my fear to limit it. Yeah. That made me think about being vulnerable. Uh, why are men especially so afraid of being vulnerable? That's a great question. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I will say that it's a more of a social construct. We have been taught for decades, generations, that vulnerability is weakness to not show emotion, you know, the cultural narratives of, you know, don't let them see you cry. Don't let them see you sweat. Always have it together. If I'm going to be vulnerable in contrast to what I've learned, quote unquote, a man is, that's going to come into conflict. You know, I've been taught always make sure you have it together, have all the answers. Don't let them see you cry. Don't let them see you sweat. Keep it all together. And then when someone asks me, especially in relationship, you know, asks me for vulnerability, that'll go contrary to all this programming that I've learned over time. 
So then what starts to happen, the conflict that men in our culture or masculinity comes into with that challenge of vulnerability is that we have an image or a facade of masculinity. There's no real space for vulnerability in it. So the moment you ask me to be vulnerable, I'm going to interpret that as losing. I'm going to interpret that as losing masculinity, losing power, losing control. But if you start to notice uh, the men that refrain from or resist vulnerability become very rigid in life. And what is rigid eventually breaks. There's no flexibility. There's no fluidity. There's no time to say, okay, right now I, I, I bring the hammer to life. And then I put that away and I bring the rose to life. There, there's, there must be this dance. And if I only pick one, uh, what will happen is my relationships will come to me asking for the rose and I'm going to think all I have is a hammer and I'm going to end up eventually breaking those relationships. Wow. That is so um, interesting the way you talk about programming and this uh, constructed idea that we have. We all do, men and women. And with for men, it seems to me like it's a lot more connected to power and control. Not to say that some women are not like that, too, but mostly men. Why do you think that is? I think that there has been a, again, a cultural programming to what is the mark of a man or a woman. And, and that's where I think a lot of masculinity and femininity has gotten confused and convoluted. I think men have been uh, programmed more towards accomplishment and achieving which gives a sense of power or control, like you said. Uh, and I cannot speak for women, but from what I've seen, what's been programmed towards women is more external beauty, youth, and that it, make sure you just show up or look a certain way and then you'll get respect or whatever it is that you want. And I think there's been this programming in our culture that has men just go to achieve and accomplish And with a promise of power, esteem, uh, control, uh, freedom, you know, uh, respect, that once you accomplish all of this, then you'll get all of that. And I think part of that current epidemic that I was talking about before is that that promise is really, it's a lie. Our culture has shown us it's a lie. And so what happens is men are willing to compromise their spirit with this promise of in the future when I accomplish, then I'll receive power and freedom and respect. And I, what we're showing and what we're realizing is that we're actually calling the bluff of that promise. We have tons of men in our culture right now that are successful and accomplished and they're miserable and they've destroyed their health along the way and they've destroyed their marriages along the way and they've compromised their spirit along the way and because we've been sold a promise go accomplish this and you'll be powerful and respected and it'll fill up that hole inside of you and it's a false promise very much so so that's interesting the way this constructed um, dynamic between men and women we are playing roles and in a way, sort of uh, playing a game. It is. It's a great word for it. It's a game, a role, or a facade. 
It's a facade that I'm actually putting in front of you an act or a facade or a game. Whereas I think when we were speaking before, when we take true masculinity and true femininity and we merge them together, we become incredibly dynamic, incredibly powerful, incredibly creative. Because then as a man, I can bring discipline, consistency, commitment, and then I can also bring patience and forgiveness and compassion. I can bring both that masculine and feminine. One of my favorite books is the Tao Te Ching. And the Tao speaks a lot about masculine and feminine. And one of the ways that the Tao talks about is we hammer wood together to build a house, but it's the empty space in which we live. And so to me, masculinity is the frame it's the wood, it's the, what frames the home, but femininity is the creative space in which we live. It makes a house a home. You need both. You need the frame and you need the empty space in between. And when, when we come together in that as a human being, uh, we become very dynamic. Yeah, yes. Um, I like the way you talk about purpose. I never heard it this way. You say that our purpose in life is not found, but rather uh, forged or cultivated. That's very unique. Talk to me about that. How did you come up with this idea? <laughs> Through my coaching and training practice, and I surround myself with a lot of uh, you know, coaches and, and trainers like myself, and we, a lot of us have spoken about it's a really a perspective. The moment I think from a perspective that I must go find my purpose, that means from that perspective, my purpose is somehow or somewhere outside of me external. And then from that perspective, I now need to make my life about finding my purpose. And what if I don't? That actually puts a tremendous amount of pressure on someone. But the moment I shift my perspective and I say, hold on, my purpose is forged and cultivated. That means that that perspective is saying that my purpose is within me, that it's a, it's a blueprint, like a spiritual blueprint, like a dharma, they call it in the East, that it's actually already in me. And my job and my mission is actually to create a environment in which that purpose can thrive, cultivate, be forged from within me. That my job is actually really to nourish it, to cultivate it, to create an environment in which it can thrive. That actually becomes now, rather than a pressure of finding, it becomes an excitement of discovery. Yeah, yeah. And I agree. It makes a lot of sense to me. And you also talk about how purpose is different from principles. I would like to know what the difference is and also what are the principles that you live by? So I distinguish in the book purpose from platform. And purpose is that spiritual dharma, that spiritual fingerprint. This is why I'm here. It's worth giving my life over to. Platforms are really the vehicles in which we deliver our purpose. So for me, I'm a transformational trainer. I'm a men's fulfillment coach. I own a retreat company. I'm an author. I'm a husband. Those are all platforms in life. Those are platforms in which I deliver the purpose of my life through. They're vehicles. 
And those can constantly shift. As I evolve, some of them evolve. And one of the challenges of men is that we think our purpose in life is actually what we do. And I challenge that. I say, it's not what we do, it's how we do it and the vehicles we do it through. Then principles are those valuable states of our inner being that we value most that really protect our character and our spirit. In the book, I give an example. It's like watching a little kid uh, go bowling when they put the bumpers up. The, <laughs> they put those little bumpers up so that when the kid rolls the bowling ball down the alley, it's guaranteed that they hit something. <laughs> they, they, they keep the ball from going in the gutter. So when we're clear, when men are clear about their principles in life, um, it, they protect our spirit. They protect our, and forge our character and strengthen our character. So if I know for me that humility and reverence and uh, forgiveness and gratitude are the principles in which I live my life by, well, now I can live my life by those principles. And when I stay within those principles and honor them, my life guarantees that I move forward into my purpose. And when I go against those principles, I'm guaranteed to suffer. The challenge for many men is that they don't know the principles in which they live by and then wonder, why am I constantly suffering? And part of that epidemic that we spoke of is many men are constantly compromising their principles unconsciously without knowing it. Right. And how do they know for sure that's when suffering uh, ends? Is that really a realistic uh, way of measuring? Well, I say that when you operate outside of your principles, you're guaranteed to suffer. It's, it's a guarantee. It's one of the few guarantees that there are in life because I cannot operate outside of my principles and expect to feel fulfilled and happy. It's not going to happen. But what happens is that when I live within these protective measurements of my spirit, when I live within them, I build character. I protect my spirit. Now I have a far greater possibility and probability to be fulfilled and happy and honorable and trustworthy because that now begins to be the discipline and the consistency of my character and what I reveal as my character. Right. That also goes back to what you said earlier about honesty, mm -hmm. just being authentic and honest. Yes. Yeah. It may be uncomfortable, but at least it builds character. I love the way you talk about protecting the spirit, protecting your spirit. That brings me to the question, one of my questions here. What do you mean when you say trust your medicine? Yeah, so there's a, there's a chapter in my book where when we talk about purpose, that spiritual fingerprint, that spiritual blueprint that is within, in my opinion, is in every person, your medicine are the skills and the gifts and the talents that you have that forge and strengthen your delivery system of that of your purpose. They're the skills and the gifts and the talents that you've been endowed with that really bring forth your purpose, bring forth your creativity, bring forth your principles, bring forth your character, bring forth all of that incentive and all of that desire and all of that yearning in you. So, The, your medicine is all those gifts and skills and talents that 
feed and fan the flame of your purpose. Yeah. Yes, yes. A thousand times. <laughs> um, talk to me about knowledge and also creativity. But before you talk to me about knowledge with committed action is power. That's the phrase you use. So before that, you answer that question. We'll talk about that. Um, how is knowledge different from wisdom? Education and knowledge and wisdom, I do distinguish them because knowledge can be simply a factual awareness that, okay, I'm now aware of certain uh, insights or facts. So I say knowledge is potential power because there's not necessarily anything that I need to do with it. Knowledge with committed action is really when we become powerful. And so knowledge is simply understanding something now that I didn't before. Before wisdom, let me go into education. To teach someone or to create knowledge is what we just spoke about. But to educate is really uh, the root of education is to educare. I believe it's a Greek word to call forth from within. So you're actually in teaching something. I'm saying you don't know something and now you know it. But in education, we're actually saying, no, you already know it. You've just simply forgot it or just need, simply need to cultivate it. That I'm at, we're actually calling it forth from within someone's inner world, that you actually own this, this insight. You just simply forgot it or you've suppressed it. And then wisdom would be to take that awareness, to take that understanding, to take that what's... Uh, forged from within me and put it into action and to know when is the the time or the temperance to bring it forth wisdom would be that awareness in action and knowing knowing when to speak up and knowing also when to keep quiet <laughs> right yeah oh i like that and that makes sense too a lot of sense and that takes it goes back to that idea of we spoke earlier about balance So wisdom and balance might be, um, they might have the same definition in a way. And also harmony. I think that what is commonly overlooked is harmony. I think wisdom really comes from harmony. And that's why, to me, I think our greatest teacher of wisdom is really the natural world, because there's a harmony to the natural world, that when we follow it, We create patience and temperance and wisdom and humility. And when we go against it, we create conflict and force and unsustainability. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Yeah. So there are so many, I mean, great topics in your book. I love when you talk about making peace with death. And uh, you also talk about your father. So let me actually ask you this question. Talk to me about your father and the profound lessons that you have learned from him. I talk about my father as almost like I had two fathers. Growing up, my father was more of that stern, hard, very masculine, uh, keep it all together. I, I don't know if I ever saw my father cry until uh, later in life when my parents uh, divorced. And then after uh, my father's Uh, my parents divorced, my father lost his sister, my father lost his mother, my father began to soften. And later in life, we had a, an incredible bond. We spoke every morning at nine o'clock in the morning, we would have a cup of coffee over the phone. And, 
And we became very, very close uh, in his last uh, almost 10 years in his life. And when he passed away, uh, I was with him and uh, holding his hand and my brothers were with me and my stepmother. And I remember holding his hand and as he, as he took his last breath, I remember there was actually a tremendous amount of peace that came over me because there wasn't anything left unsaid. There, I, I had forgiven him and we had created this incredible bond. And, and to me, it was this real power in forgiveness and this power in honesty and this power in vulnerability. And these lessons that he taught me, uh, and as I told you a little bit about in my 20s, you know, I had my midlife crisis in 30, I left a, a corporate job and really went to fulfill my passions and live a purposeful life. And my father got to see it. And he was really, really proud of me and, and, and really admired that I had the courage to live a life that I thought was purposeful. At first, he thought I was crazy, but later he started to see how committed I was. And I, I was blessed that my father got to see that and witness it in me. And I got to see a side of my father that was vulnerable and strong and really uh, far more balanced than when I was young. And, and those were some great lessons that I learned about, you know, the time and, uh, and of life is now. And for me, I, that's where I came up with the, the mantra that I live by is keep death close. Keep your death close because tomorrow's not promised. I, I don't want to waste time. I, I spent a lot of my 20s wasting time and, and obsessing over the future. And I, I thought, no, life is now. If, if death were close, how would I be living? I would tell the people I love that I love them. I would live a life that's purposeful and impactful. I would do the things that light me up. I would spend time around the people that I truly care about and that support me and I support them. And I would live differently. And that became the mantra which I live by. Keep your death close. Wow. I love that. And I absolutely believe in these um, kinds of deep reflections. Um, how do we learn to do just that, what you spoke of, make peace with death and reflect more on the end? Because it could be at any moment, actually. First, we, we've got to acknowledge it. It's the one universal truth is that we all face it. How we get there is entirely up to us. It's entirely unique to each individual. But I think the first thing is we, we must radically accept it. It's the only thing that's guaranteed. It's the only thing that we cannot hide from. So I think the first thing is to accept it. And then from a place of acceptance, how do I want it to go? What do I want it to look like? Who do I want to speak at my funeral? And what would they say? And if what you want people to say at your funeral is not matching up to how you're living now, or at least trending, then you've got some decisions to make and some trends to adjust. And I think that's the first thing is we must accept it. And we must say to ourselves and be honest, is the way that I'm living now, is that trending to what it is that I want? That when I do pass on from this... <laughs> meat suit that I, I've occupied <laughs> for this, this lifetime, what, what's the impact and legacy I will have left? And if, if that's not matching up, there is nothing that says something is going to come in your future and interrupt it and put you back on track. It's up to each individual to say, okay, this is, I take that 
end goal that I know is coming and I bring all that energy to here and now. What can I do now that advances my state, that leaves the makes an impact that leaves a legacy here and now, and then consistently put it together over and over and over again. Wow. Yeah. Um, Do you think that the reason why most of us are afraid of death, of our own death, it's because we are not living a fulfilled life? (laughs) Yes, I'm inclined to agree with you. (laughs) I think death teaches us a lot about how we're living, because if I am resistant to accepting what I know is coming, then it puts me in a state of resistance. I'm actually forgetting that by resisting death, I'm also resisting life. Yeah, fear. Fear is the um, the underlying, um, I guess, obstacle to get there. But we're also afraid of losing people we love. That's another kind of fear, I guess. Yeah, it's the fear of loss. It's a grief, which is a, a sudden interruption uh, that I didn't necessarily or consciously ask for. And But there's a process to all of that. There's a process to grief and And the final stage of that process is actually meaning, finding meaning or making meaning. So if I allow myself to go through that grieving process, just like my father, I was able to make meaning of it after I allowed myself to go through that process. And I think if we do the same thing with, as we keep our death close, we find our meaning and our purpose in life by allowing ourselves to go through that. Because when I allow myself to accept or embrace or keep death close, I now give myself the opportunity to embrace life wholeheartedly. And if I resist, you know, my inevitability, then I'm also withholding life and love as well. And, and we, for, we, we forget, we're very clear on the amount of grief or suffering that we'll receive from losing, but we're, we're very unclear and confused about how much pain we're actually causing by withholding mm. in life. Mm. Wow. So, so true. And my last question for this section, I have my final questions to you, is about um, the way you speak about presence. Presence is a choice. So this is where your power is. Um, how do we come to understand presence in a practical way? I think it's very valuable for people to really practice presence. I think presence, I, I say in the book that it's it's my choice to be here and now. But I think people forget that presence is a practice, that it's a, a constant practice of choosing to be here in this moment. And I think there's a lot of mechanics that we can actually add to our life, things like meditation or mindfulness practices that uh, are very, very valuable to create a discipline around presence. Because if, if there is no conscious, intentional discipline around presence, our life becomes very reactive. And then we simply get very swept up in circumstances or external conditions. And we forget that we have a power to simply be present in this moment. Even if this moment is uncomfortable, uh, if I'm conscious to it, that's actually where my growth is. So I think the the mechanics of uh, meditation and mindfulness practices, I think now more than ever, are incredibly valuable. Yeah. How long do you suggest we meditate? 
I follow a uh, simple barometer that the only way to mess up meditation is to not do it. True. (laughs) (laughs) So I think for someone that doesn't meditate, they may think, oh, this is really daunting. Start with five minutes, start with 10 minutes, you know, just simply start small and you end up wanting to do it. You know, you want to do it. And then what will start to happen is it becomes like showering. You don't necessarily know when people shower, but you do know when they don't. You know, so, so I have sometimes <laughs> right, there's people right. I'm like, you, you haven't meditated today, have you? And they're like, no, no, I was busy. Oh, okay. So I think uh, uh, it's unique to each individual, but uh, I do, do something. Yeah, I like that. The comparison with the shower and yeah, true. <laughs> Um, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions, Mike? Anything to add is uh, I, my, my latest endeavor is, is from the book. Uh, there's a chapter in the book called Find Your Tribe, where I really encourage men to gather, to get together, to grow together, because one of the one of the things that we've also been taught uh, as a culture for men is figure it out on your own and i think that's incredibly detrimental uh, for men it, it's very valuable that you have a tribe a support system people that you lean on people that lean on you that you grow together with and on my website on, on newmanemerging.com there's a there's a link for find your tribe where i've now uh, created a space online where men can come and gather and grow and learn together and that has been a really, really valuable platform and vehicle for me lately in uh, in my endeavors. So I do encourage men, like you don't need to go it alone. You don't need to figure it out on your own. And also you never will. Uh, when men gather, they grow and, uh, and their growth is accelerated. So uh, there's no need to go it alone. There, there's men that want to support you. Yeah, I love that. So my final questions, what is your definition of success today? Hmm. Success to me is an accomplishment, uh, a a declared accomplishment in a domain of my life. To me, I take success success to another level of fulfillment where all the domains in my life receive the appropriate amount of love and attention. So true success to me is that I, I accomplish something in uh, one domain of my life, but it's not harming or hurting any other domain of my life. Um, and I think that is a, there's a balance and a harmony when we really live from that place that uh, success or accomplishment in one area does not need to be detrimental to another area of my life. That I don't need to make a lot of money and destroy my marriage along the way or my health along the way. That I can really be accomplished in all the areas and all the domains of my life. And that's what I coach. And that's what I really think as men wake up to that possibility, we'll create a new uh, paradigm and a new possibility for our future. Yeah. How wonderful. Uh, What is to be strong? What is your idea of strength? Strength uh, for me, and I, I distinguish strength from power. Strength is the ability to sit in uncomfortable scenarios or situations and to simply be present. That to me, I have a strength. Uh, Power to me is the ability to influence behaviors or courses of events. So for me, strength is the ability to sit even if I'm in my discomfort. And then power for me is that I have an ability that I can influence 
my own behaviors or even uh, the behaviors of others or of a group, or I can influence outcomes of course of events. And I, I use my power to influence. Um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? The hardest lesson to learn about myself was how detrimental <laughs> withholding and dishonesty are. Wow. Um, do you believe in life after death? I do. I do. What kind of life, Michael? I can't wait to find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and come back and tell us. If, yes, <laughs> I'll come back and tell you. But I, I tell you, I can't find out because, you know, I, I live by a mantra. Uh, my wife and I, we sit outside often and we love being outdoors and outside. And there's times where we, we say, like, we look at something spectacular. We say to ourselves or to each other, we say, how dare I ask for more? Like I look up at the sky and the stars and the and nature and all that I've been given in life. And I think, how dare I, I, I ever ask for more? And then I think, if this life is that great, imagine what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, what a beautiful perspective. Yeah, way of thinking. Yeah. So that, that to me is a mantra that I live by. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? That I'm loved that I make a difference and that beauty is everywhere. It has been a meaningful conversation, fun, and I absolutely love your wisdom. Thank you so much. Your questions are excellent and amazing and deep and profound. So I really thank you for the guidance of, of this conversation. It's been a, a really a blessing to connect with you. Thank you, Michael. And my last, last question, where can we find more information about you, your work, books, products, services, and future projects? You can find me at michaeldesanti.com or newmanemerging.com. From there, you can, uh, you can apply. Uh, for The men can apply to be in Find Your Tribe. You can uh, reach out to me and send me an email regarding personal coaching and, and training. And also the book, uh, New Man Emerging, is also available on the site as well. So everything is available there. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Michael, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. It was really an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Bye for now. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Michael DeSanti, please visit his website, newmanemerging.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.